0: Okay, we're not beginning with a comedy intro today because we're starting with a very sad story. Uh, It'll be the story of Jose Fernandez, the baseball player who lost his life uh, over the weekend. Uh, We'll also be talking later on about the election. Matt Flegenheimer, who's been out on the campaign trail uh, with the New York Times, is coming back to uh, talk to us, give us the state of the race as we head into tonight's long-awaited debate. And then, uh, I don't know, save your nickels and dimes and your... uh, your free hours or something. I don't know. I guess you don't do that on cell phones anymore. But anyway, we'd love for you to call in in the final segment, 860-275-7266. Don't call yet. But 860 275 as we head in to the debate, I know you guys have a lot of uh, things on your mind, things you want to say. Uh, I'll be asking you some very specific questions, too. So, in fact, two gigantic sports figures died over the weekend. One of them, as you know, is Arnold Palmer. Uh, we're sort of trusting that uh, there's been an, a, a lot and will continue to be a lot of tremendous coverage Uh, of Arnold Palmer, Uh, and we were more concerned that the story of Jose Fernandez didn't get lost in that shuffle. Uh, He was a much younger athlete with a very different kind of story. Uh, He died over the weekends. Over the weekend, uh, he was killed when his boat, uh, he and uh, two other uh, people were out uh, enjoying themselves in a boat. They hit a pile of rocks. It capsized. He was 24 years old, uh, and uh, all of baseball was very, very sad on Sunday. So uh, joining us now is somebody who was with us actually quite recently for our show on independent baseball, independent minor league baseball. That's Ben Lindbergh, a staff writer for The Ringer. TheRinger.com, an author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. Ben uh, wrote uh, about Jose Fernandez for The Ringer over the weekend. Uh, thanks for coming back, Ben.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back. Sorry, it's under sadder circumstances this time.
0: Right. So um, I, I, I want to go at this at a bunch of different levels, and we'll start with the most uh, stark and numerically oriented level. Uh, how good a pitcher was Jose Fernandez?
1: Almost unparalleled, really, from the moment he stepped on a major league mound back in 2013 when he was 20 years old. He was basically the second best pitcher in baseball after Clayton Kershaw from that day forward whenever he was healthy. And that was incredible because he was so young, because he skipped two minor league levels on his way to the majors. He came right from high A to the majors and started dominating immediately. So if you just look kind of on a rate basis, who was the best of all time, in terms of you know how good were you per each inning you pitched, there are only two guys above him on that leaderboard right now: Clayton Kershaw and Pedro Martinez. And of course, you know Fernandez sadly didn't get the chance to grow old in the way that most baseball players do and lose speed off their fastball and have that period of their career where they're no longer as effective. But You know, for the time that he had on the mound, he was among the very best pitchers in baseball, not only among his contemporaries, but really of all time.
0: Um, And one thing that he seemed to be able to do in particular, which not every great pitcher necessarily does, is strike out an awful lot of batters, right? It seemed as though if he'd had a full career, we would have been looking at some strikeout numbers that once again would have placed him among the tops of all time
1: absolutely he not only will end up leading the national league in strikeouts this year but he has the highest career strikeout percentage among starters of all time for you know guys who pitched at least 400 innings he was just really one of the the best ever at missing bats which is one of the best things that a, a pitcher can do and When batters did manage to put the bat on the ball, they usually hit it on the ground, which is what a pitcher wants to try to get the hitter to do, too. So he was just incredibly effective and and just had an amazing arsenal. You could watch him for one inning and understand why he was so great. He could throw really hard. He had some of the best breaking balls in the game, curveball, slider, an effective changeup. His pitches moved and danced and broke, and it really was just a, a thrill to watch him.
0: Now, as I say, we're going to talk about him on a number of different levels. That's just sort of the pure baseball level. Uh, Maybe the next level down is his story itself. He is like, there are a lot of Cuban baseball players showing up in the major leagues right now. Uh, His story, though, included, I think, about a year in a Cuban prison in order to even get here.
1: Yes, he had a, a very harrowing trip, really. It was his fourth attempt to defect from Cuba that was actually the successful one. He had tried a few previous times, and didn't make it all the way and was forced to spend time in Cuban prisons with, you know, dangerous inmates who he told people when he arrived didn't have a whole lot of regard for human life. And and so he really suffered just to get there, you know, let alone to perfect his craft. He, He went through so much. And in one of those trips, he saved his mother's life when she fell overboard and, you know, he didn't even know it was his mother when he jumped overboard to help whoever it was. It turned out to be her. So, you know, it's kind of a a particularly cruel twist to this event that it happened in the way that it did, given how he entered our lives, you know, via, via a boat, via saving people's lives in the water. So, you know, that makes this really harder to swallow.
0: You say one of the we're going to talk uh, in the when we get to the next level about a lot of the kinds of uh, moments on the field that were very uh, peculiar to and special about Fernandez. But uh, one of them that, that wasn't sort of so much a baseball moment was his reunion with his grandmother. Tell, tell us about that. Right.
1: Yeah, he he hadn't seen his grandmother since he left, when, since he defected at 15 and he was extremely close to her. And so. When he was reunited with her several years later, it was just a, you know, a tearful moment for both of them and and also, I think, for everyone watching. And, you know, it it meant a lot, I think, not just to him and to his grandmother, but to the Cuban community of Miami, which, you know, for him to end up playing for the Marlins was just extremely fortuitous. Of course, there's a large Cuban community there, and he was a hero, you know, rightly so all of those people who had come over and, and suffered the same hardships that he had, and his success was their success, in a sense.
0: Now, I want to go uh, into yet another level here, and that is sort of you know his comportment on the field. That there was a way in which he... Stood in stark contrast to a kind of aesthetic uh, and set of norms that exist within baseball. These have to do with, in no way, being emotionally demonstrative if you can possibly avoid it, uh, and keeping your head down, uh, especially if you hit a home run. Run really fast around the bases. Pretend you didn't hit a home run. Pretend something really uh, pretty grim happened to you. Uh, there are all these kinds of rules. They seem to be, you know, a, a remnant of an, an aesthetic that that flies maybe in contrast to various other kinds of ethnic aesthetics. And, you know, you don't want to make this into some kind of simplistic uh, version of what Latino players or Cuban players are like. But there's a way in which Fernandez allowed himself to be happy, allowed himself to have fun, allowed himself to be demonstrative and acted a little bit more like probably one of us would probably act, you know, if he hit a home run, which pitchers don't do that often, or something really great happened. There was a way in which I think a lot of people felt he was waking baseball up to its emotions. Not that he's the only player to do that, but the, he seemed to have a special spark.
1: Yes, he definitely did. And, and because he played at such a high level and was so young, he he seemed almost like the standard bearer for you know looking like you were having fun while you were playing baseball, which doesn't sound like anything revolutionary, but it, at times it is. You know, there is this sort of old school, straight laced way of playing baseball and, you know, not showing up your opponent or or giving the impression that you might be showing up your opponent by showing some sort of emotion on the field. And he played with a very apparent joy. And I think everyone really connected to that because it was the way that we think we would play. If we somehow, you know, had the right arm of Jose Fernandez and made it to the majors, we would look like we were happy to be there. And he always did. And you know, people called him cocky at times, and perhaps that was accurate, but, you know, he was incredibly talented. He was skilled. He backed it up. It, it wasn't unjustified cockiness, and, and I don't think any of it was ever mean-spirited. You know, he he wasn't trying to show up an opponent or assert his dominance or anything. He was just taking pleasure in just how great he was and and how much he enjoyed being great. So there was that moment a few years ago when he hit his – first career home run and and a catcher then for the Braves, Brian McCann, who was kind of the, you know, face of this uh, old school way of of playing baseball took exception to how Fernandez admired his home run and took his time rounding the bases. And, you know, there was this brawl and there's this great picture of, you know, the benches clearing and, and all of these players milling about and fighting. And then there's Jose Fernandez kind of on the periphery of this group, just, filing, you know, while everyone else is is fighting, and and that was really, I, I think, what made people so attached to him in the way that. Many superstars don't forge that kind of emotional connection.
0: Right. And I, we should say that when we say brawl, we mean baseball brawl, which means that everybody right. kind of runs out and kind of gets yep. kind of close to everybody else. And there's maybe some pushing and shoving. And one of the great things, I watched that clip today, um, that you can see, I forget which team, but one of the team's bullpen is jogging very slow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh we have to run all the way over yeah. to home plate because yeah. there's and so they're Here running <laughs> they're just running with no so little urgency you know it just sort of thinks, well if we run at this pace it'll probably be over by the time we get there and then we can just run back right. and and so it was sort of that kind of thing and you know looking at the clip too i mean you know you use the word admire which is of course that's the term that base that that gets you in trouble and that's sort of Weirdly, I mean, only in baseball would that be a pejorative, that you admired the home run that you hit. And I don't know if – it seemed to me like it was the first home run he'd ever hit. He's a pitcher. They don't hit a lot of home runs. If you or I did it, we would do that. We go. We, you just want to see it, right? You're just like <laughs> – I, I wouldn't be admiring it. I'd just be going, oh, look, I'd not – you know, I have right. to watch this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Of course, it's completely natural. And, you know, that's something that people talk about when they talk about the average age of the baseball fan and how the sport has trouble appealing to a younger generation. You know, a lot of it is just kind of the the structure of the sport. You have the batting order, you don't give you don't get to give the ball to your star and you know have him shoot the make-or-break basket it's you know he comes up if he happens to come up that kind of thing and it's hard for one individual player to stand out and i think fernandez was really a, a gift to the game in that sense and you know not only was he among the most talented players in the game at such an early age but he was so charismatic and was just the best ambassador baseball possibly could have hoped for so you know if you had made a list uh, last week of the the most indispensable baseball players, he would have been probably at the very top of that list. And, And that's what made this just so heartbreaking and so shocking.
0: And I would sort of go, I I didn't know much about him because I'm a a Red Sox fan you don't get to see the Marlins uh, that often, but he does remind me of David Ortiz in a certain way which is that Mm -hmm. one thing that Ortiz has done and he's doing it uh, obviously to an extreme right now as he trots through the final days of his baseball career uh, there was a moment this weekend where uh, Ortiz hit what would be uh, an easy double for most players, Ortiz is big and slow and his feet hurt and he legged it out and he got to second base, this was against Tampa Bay, and and he did appear to beat the tag. He he appeared to have actually gotten the double that he had hit, and then they reviewed it, and it seemed maybe like his knee came off the bag with a little momentum, or he's just kind of regathering himself, and Evan Longoria kept the glove on him, uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was, so on a video review, he's called out. So it's a close game. Uh, A double turns into an out. Most ball players at that point are probably feeling not too great about things. It's the end of the inning. Ortiz gathers himself, gets up to run off the field. Longoria is about to run off the field. And Ortiz just slings his arm around Longoria's neck and runs off the field with his arm around Longoria, talking to him yeah. and, and making him laugh. He's probably saying yeah. something like, why do you want to do something like that to an old man like me in my careers? Whatever he's saying, he's getting Longoria to laugh. And you don't see that in baseball that much, Ben. And it seems to me in particular, one of the things that you don't see is, I mean, it's almost a—it's like a cardinal rule batters and pitchers don't talk to one another. Even if you, right. like, accidentally hit uh, – if I accidentally hit a batter, if I was a pitcher, I would just yell, I, I'm sorry I didn't mean it or something, and nobody ever does that. But there's this great clip yep. that I think you link to, and it's uh, mm-hmm. Troy Tulowitzki. I'll let you describe it. It's just this incredible little play followed by an exchange between uh, Troy Tulewitsky and and Jose.
1: Yeah, it's one of Fernandez's signature moments. It it was this, you know, smoked line drive by Tulowitzki hit right back at Fernandez, who somehow made the play. You know, one of those just purely instinctive catches, and and no one could believe that he had done it, you know, least of all Tulowitzki. And so Tulawitsky, you know, had this exasperated expression, and he's looking out there like, you got to be kidding me. And, you know, Fernandez could have just, stalked off the mound, right, impassive and, you know, maintained the the macho appearance and not, you know, showed any acknowledgement of Puliski's reaction, but he didn't. He was laughing and he was joking and he was kind of boasting a little bit that he had managed to snag this ball. And, you know, I, I think he did it in such a way that no one could possibly take offense from it. It was, it was clear that, you know, I mean, it was an incredible play and he was, proud of it and and happy to have done it. And, and, you know, it wasn't putting Tulewitzki down or anything. It was just kind of a light joshing, you know, kind of a ribbing. Anyone would do this if you were, you know, made that play in your weekend softball league or whatever, but you just don't see it as often in baseball. And the fact that you did see it from Fernandez really set him apart from the pack, even aside from his you know, superlative pitching.
0: Yeah, I'll go a little farther. I actually uh, watched the clip kind of carefully today. So, in in fact, and I'm sure he would not have done this with any other pitcher, it, it's, it's because Fernandez has this reputation for being loose and fun and funny. What happens is, and this thing happens in an eye blank, it's just the ball is smacked and then it's in Fernandez's glove. And actually, the first person to talk is Tulowitzki and he yells out to the mound, Did you catch that? You can see it on his <laughs> lip. He's going, Did you catch that? And, and, yeah. and, and, and Fernandez starts smiling and laughing and nodding, Yes, I did. You can see on his lips, he's going, Yes, I did. And they're, yeah. you know, and the in a way, it seems as though Fernandez, even in maybe a slightly more uptight white player like Zulowitzki, is breaking down some of these norms. Like, we don't talk to each other, even if it's kind of a funny moment.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a shame, or one of the many reasons why it's such a shame to have lost him at such an early age, especially because as you mentioned, you know, you weren't familiar with him really because you hadn't watched him on a regular basis. And that's probably true of a lot of baseball fans because he played for the Marlins. He was never able to make a postseason start because he played mostly for, you know, non-contending teams or teams that didn't end up making it. And because, you know, he's 24 and he had a Tommy John surgery mixed in there, his, his actual, you know, availability was somewhat limited. So, uh, the good thing is that, you know, we at least have everything Fernandez did on a major league mound preserved forever in high definition. And I think anyone can go back and watch it and understand how great he was and how great he would have been if he could have continued. You know, he was already pitching at just a all, of, you know, inner circle hollow fame level. And there's no reason to think that he couldn't have continued pitching that way. So you know, it's a, it's a real loss, but we at least did get to see him at the top of his game and, and the top of the game, period.
0: Ben Lindbergh uh, agreed to talk to you. Uh, ben is a staff writer at The Ringer, where he's written about Jose Fernandez, uh, author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. You should read that book. It's not like any other baseball book. When we come back, Matt Fleckenheimer from The New York Times is going to bring us up to date on the state of the campaign. All right. We're back. Um, as you all know, tonight is a debate. I'm sure you're making your plans. In the, in the final segment of the show today, I will, as they say, open the phones. Not that we really do anything to open the phones. I don't know why we even say that. But anyway, you can call in. That's the main thing to talk uh, about uh, what your uh, concerns Uh, And hopes and fears about the debates might be. But right now we want to sort of bring you up to date on a bunch of stories. This campaign, it really is drinking from a fire hose. There's just so much going on uh, that all you can do is nibble off little chunks of it and try to figure out what they mean. Joining us to help uh, do that, Matt a national political reporter for The New York Times. Uh, He's been covering the campaign. Uh, Matt, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. I'm just going to walk you through some of your stories, because just doing that, I think we're going to get some interesting snapshots here. Uh, We're going to start with this rather peculiar endorsement uh, over the weekend. It's not peculiar that a member of the Republican Party or a a former Republican candidate for the same nomination would endorse the nominee. But for Ted Cruz to um, endorse Donald Trump, well, I I thought the the signature moment of your article about this was when you found a man who said he had to scrape the uh, Cruz for President bumper sticker off his car... And explain who that man was.
2: Sure. This is not just a man. This is, in fact, his former campaign spokesman, again, Rick Tyler, um, who had really been, um, you know, the, among the, the sort of small circle um, that Cruz kept from the campaign, um, you know, a, an advisor, certainly a huge fan, an admirer. Um, and I think he voiced what a lot of Cruz supporters were feeling on Friday, which was that this was somebody who they had trusted and, and whose brand had been... Um, someone who was not afraid to to buck his party to sort of take big chances, um, whether it's the government shutdown or the speech that he gave um, at the RNC. And to see him um, come around and and give his support to Trump, um, I think for a lot of people felt like um, something that was inconsistent with with who they thought Ted Cruz had been and and the sort of politician he would fashioned himself as in the public eye.
0: Right. So candidates often have to bury the hatchet afterwards. George H.W. Bush said a lot of negative things about Ronald Reagan in the 1980 primaries, wound up being his running mate. But the negative things were things like, you know, that your ideas are voodoo economics as opposed to your wife is uglier than my wife. I'm going to spill the beans on your wife. Your father was involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. I mean, these weren't. You know these weren't the typical campaign disagreements like i don't I don't agree with your policies. I think I'd be a much better president than you. People say that stuff all the time. People don't say this stuff all the time. The hatchet that they're talking about burying right now is a big one, and it's dripping with blood, right
2: sure and well, and he spoke um, in July, you know when when Ted Cruz made a speech at the convention, he was confronted by by furious delegates from his own state in, in Texas the next morning at a breakfast. And he said, look, I'm not in the habit of endorsing people who insult my wife or insult my father. Uh, he spoke about the, the the pledge from the from the RNC, which was, you know, that, that any candidate who ran would support the eventual nominee. Um, and he said that pledge had been abrogated, was the word he used, um, the moment that Trump started sort of leveling these personal attacks. Um, so this notion, which he spoke about on Friday, that, you know, he had made a pledge to support the nominee and he intended to, to stick to it. Um, as recently as July, he had said that that pledge really shouldn't exist anymore. Um, and that Trump had invalidated it. So the rationale here, um, I think a lot of his supporters have had a hard time getting their head
0: around right this is a, it's a different thing all right we're going to speed date through uh, some of your other stories. Um, this is a group of voters that nobody ever talks about uh, except that they 've uh, come into play in this election. A study this month from two Rutgers professors projected that more than thirty five million people with disabilities would be eligible to vote this year that's roughly one sixth of the el- electorate as you wrote matt this is i mean i don 't know i 've been covering campaigns for a long time i've never heard this talked about i've never ta- heard this group of people talked about as a potential voting block but as as you wrote, the Clinton campaign thinks maybe it can be not a completely unified vote, bo- voting block, but a bunch of people with a common interest. Uh, I'll let you pick that up.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's partly an um, appeal to the sort of common interest and, and finding uh, a group of voters who, who don't necessarily get the attention um, that others do in, in the typical campaign. It's also sort of broadly about the Clinton campaign trying now to kind of tell her story and, and create sort of an affirmative message around her campaign itself, um, after, you know, spending many months really since the convention, um, making the case against Donald Trump. And at least that's sort of what's, what's been kind of front and center in, in their message and, and in the coverage of it and people's perception of, of the kind of race that she's running that, uh, you know, that there was a, a sense inside of her campaign that they needed to do more, uh, to make a forceful case on her behalf, um. For her, not against him. And this was um, a piece of that. And they've had several speeches um, these last few weeks sort of aimed at at creating a more affirmative sense of what she would do and and why she should be someone you'd support independent of her opponents.
0: You you could tell back in August that they had figured this out and probably figured it out in focus groups. You could tell there was two ways that you could tell it came up a bunch of times during the convention. Specifically, the fact that that Trump had mocked and taunted this reporter who has a mm-hmm. disability, and and that also that moment is used in one of Clinton's first national ads. It's the one where the children children are sitting uh, in front of a TV oh, yeah. watching these little clips of various Trump Trump's bizarre behaviors, and one of them is his impersonation of this guy with a disability. And you get the feeling that in their focus groups, the Clinton people thought, oh, when people see this and they know about it, they freak out, but it's not necessarily something people know about. If they did know about it, it would move way near the top of, of troubling things about Donald Trump.
2: Oh, yeah. No, there's no question. And, and for her, her super PAC as well, Priorities uh, USA, they've, um, they have they placed this at the center of an ad months ago. And, and this is one of those moments from the campaign, um, if people have seen it, that, that does tend to register as, as among the most negative uh, reactions to, to Trump when they show that clip and, and show the reporter.
0: All right. More speed dating with Flegenheimer. One of the other uh, uh, things that she's one of the groups that she's less sure about are what we sometimes call millennials. I mean, voters between the ages of 18 and 29. Uh, President Obama ran very strongly with them in 2008 and 2012. She's just not polling very well with them, particularly when you put third party candidates into the mix of the polling, third and fourth party candidates candidates. And so last week was kind of millennial week. I mean, it was uh, sort of it was pretty nakedly an attempt to talk to this group of people and sort of say, well, you know, I want you to get me. Maybe you've got some problems with me, but here's some things you should like about me. I don't know how well that went, though.
2: I think I think we'll have to see. And, and the debate tonight, they certainly view as an opportunity to, to speak to that audience again. Um, I think it's telling the one of her first events after the debate this week um, on Wednesday. in New Hampshire is an appearance of Bernie Sanders, who obviously generated much more enthusiasm and, and got much more support from younger voters uh, in the Democratic primary. She knows that she'll have to lean on, on people like him, people like President Obama, who who have had a great deal more success in appealing to younger voters. Um, and the campaign knows that that's really Essentially, where this is won and the lost, these are uh, voters who who in large numbers supported President Obama um, at this point, who was in a good deal of support, at least at the polls are to be believed, uh, to third and fourth party candidates. Um, there's some sense that historically, traditionally, that those sorts of voters tend to come home as it gets closer to election day and then it becomes more of a binary race again. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't want to rely on history here. They, they need those voters who are right now potentially Johnson or Stein voters to come around to Uh, To the Clinton camp, and at the moment, those are not seemingly happening in the numbers that they need to see.
0: Well, we're talking, talking to Matt Flegenheimer from The New York Times. Uh, before he, First of all, I would to say after he leaves, and I don't have him anymore, I'll be talking to you, 860-275-7266. That's the number to call in. That's not far away, so uh, get ready, 860-275-7266. And to set that up, Matt, um, uh, the, your latest opus has to do with 11 debate possibilities that should worry the campaigns. So I'm not going to walk you through all 11. Um, but these are the things that you're talking about here are not the kind of—well, they just aren't really— the typical campaign concerns. These are things like, what if Trump invokes Bill Clinton's infidelities? Uh, What if Clinton starts coughing? And then some of them are a little bit more you know, what if Clinton drops a pop quiz? What if Trump uh, defends Putin? Uh, I don't know. You, you maybe just talk uh, talk us through a couple of them. I mean, certainly over the weekend, Trump dangled the idea. and He now says it was a joke that he was going to put Jennifer Flowers in the front row because Mark Cuban, who's been a big detractor of his, is going to be sitting in the front row per invi- invitation of Hillary Clinton. A little bit different to talk about Jennifer Flowers, a woman who uh, <laughs> acknowledged an affair with uh, that was for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, you know, I you, you feel like it's not off the table anyway. I mean, what does happen if that happens? I mean,
2: nothing's off the table, right? I, there's um, there's actually a, a sense among some supporters of of Hillary Clinton's that they would not uh, be so upset to, to see that kind of um, gambit from Trump if he wants to, to raise the specter of, of Bill Clinton's infidelities and sort of try to resuscitate some of these 1990s, you know, scandal greatest hits um, that they think ultimately might ring hollow to some voters or, or might engender some sympathy for Hillary Clinton um, I, I don't know that um, that'll be universally true but I, I think there's a sense among Clinton supporters that, that if, Trump is, if Trump sees it as advantageous to, to go that route they wouldn't necessarily mind seeing that as as awkward as it might be as painful as it might be for people who, who live those scandals in real time in the 90s that um, from a, a pure sort of political perspective that might not be a winning hand for Trump
0: the, I mean, it, it does seem as though that you can sort of understand why Clinton supporters would think that there's some historic reason to think that Rick Lazio in a Senate race kind yeah. of, you know, he got to turn towards her uh, almost in a slightly physically in- intimidating way, kind of stepping away from the podium. That seemed to work in her behalf when she was first lady going through some of the stuff that we're talking about right now. Her favorables were way, way higher than they are now. So, I mean, there's some reason to think that, yeah, it's probably a mistake for Trump to bully her or try to dig this stuff up against her. Now, a mistake she could make, I would think, would be that pop quiz thing. I mean, we know that, that Trump has not studied as hard for this test as Clinton uh, uh, has. I mean, that, that sort of goes without saying. The question is, does she win if she exposes, in a very direct way anyway, these huge tundras of ignorance that he may have?
2: It's such a risk, and, and there there are Republicans who, who still regret that in the primaries that no one really went after him with that kind of really sort of gutsy, um, direct questioning in a debate setting of, you know, quite literally asking him questions like, you know, how does a bill become a law? I mean, just to sort of try to embarrass him in some way that, at least according to some Republicans, they thought he, he really didn't have that that well of knowledge. Um, I don't think it's something the Clinton campaign is is likely to, to try, but it's, it's certainly a temptation a lot of Democrats have had to, to try to expose Trump. Uh, as they see it as someone who, who doesn't have the knowledge to be commander-in-chief. Um, as you said, I, I think it does run that risk of potentially alienating people who could view any sort of gambit along those lines as, as an elitist move, as sort of a gotcha. Um, it's an incredible risk to, to do something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the the specter that it evokes for me is 2000 and, uh, Dan, and uh, Al Gore's uh, Dingle Norwood moment where he's sort of taunting George W. Bush about the fact that George W. Yeah. Bush doesn't know what Dingle Norwood is. Of course, neither did he name anybody else. But it does seem as though the one thing that may happen here is that uh, in the in the primary debates, um, Trump was usually on stage with a whole bunch of people, like 11 people. and And what would often happen was that Trump could give one of his sort of off-the-cuff, not very heavily detailed, not necessarily backed by a lot of rationale or, or understanding answers, and then it would kind of flop over and, you know, like Rand Paul and Marco Rubio would wind out thrashing out you know, the fine print of this thing uh, between the two of them, and it didn't come back to Trump because there were too many people. He does face a little bit of a disadvantage in a two-person debate. You know, if there's something that he says that needs to be substantiated that would reasonably require him to explain explain what it is that he means or how something works, you know, or does he understand what the TPP is? Does he understand China is not a signatory to it? That that did come up uh, during the, 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 the Republican debates. There there were some moments like that. We didn't know what the nuclear triad was. You know, and if those things come up now, there's sort of nowhere to hide, right? You can't hope that, you know, Rand Paul and John Kasich are going to get into a side conversation while you have a drink of water.
2: Sure. No, I think if there's any source of optimism among Democrats and among the Clinton camp about the contours of, of tonight's debate. It's that he was really allowed to kind of hang back in, in a Republican primary debate with as many as 10 people on stage. As you said, you would, you know, go in some cases, you know, 20 minutes at a time without saying a word, he would sort of lumber in eventually with, with a memorable line um, and, and the kind of signature bluster that uh, everyone has heard. But I think there's a sense um that there's a real question about whether he can fill the space, whether he can, can stand for two minutes and, and speak credibly about issues that um, might be more likely to come up, A, in a general election debate and, and B, in a one-on-one um, where there's, as you said, there's no John Casey, there's no Rand Paul in there to uh, eat up the rest of your time.
0: All right. Matt Flagenheimer. If people want to read the rest of Matt Fle- Flegenheimer's piece, it is 11 debate possibilities that should worry the campaigns. You can find out what the other nine are by clicking on that link. You can bring it to your debate party tonight and uh, laminate it, uh, eat tacos off of it, whatever you're doing at your debate party. Uh, but Matt Flegenheimer, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thanks
0: a lot. Take care. Okay. And when we come back, it's going to be you. The number is 860-275-7266. You want to make sure you get on the air. You should probably call right now while we're doing this breaky thing. 860-275-7266.
1: This Justin Lester Holt will be the first ever debate moderator to have yellow penalty flags at his desk. Today's show was produced by Katie Tolarski and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Josh Nalea on phones. The part of Bill Curry was played by Martha Raditz. Never miss an episode. Find us on iTunes or TuneIn Radio or on our own site, WNPR.org/slash/colin. On tomorrow's show, Satanists. They're not who you think they are. And now. Back to Colin.
0: All right. Yes. That was my idea is that uh, Lester would have uh, yellow penalty flags. And let's say it's something, you know, and it's not like a misstatement or an untruth, but like let's say Donald Trump calls her crooked Hillary during the debate. He throws the flag and then they move his podium five yards back from the edge of the stage. You know, every time uh, somebody does something that Lester thinks is on sportsmanlike conduct five yards back till he's like, you know, he could be just a really small figure. Assuming it's him. I mean, maybe it'll be her. You don't know. I, I hate to judge. I want to mention a couple of things before we go to your calls. Uh, it's uh, the number here, by the way, people are already using it eight six zero. Two seven five seven two six six. We got about I don't know. We got about fifteen minutes here where we can uh, chat. Maybe a little bit more than that. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. What do I need to mention? I need to mention that um, that on October fifth uh, at Watkinson School we're doing whatever our freshly squeezed. Uh, conversations. It's going to be kind of more of this kind of thing. We're going to be talking uh, about um, kind of what got damaged, what got broken during this campaign, especially the credibility of the press. That won't be the only thing we talk about. But we'll be talking to Vivian Martin, who's the chairman of the journalism department at CCSU, to Danny Haar, uh the great Hartford current columnist. And all-purpose know-it-all, uh, impossible uh, candidate for governor. Although I'm really the only one supporting him right now uh, in 2018. And Ross Garber, uh, Republican, a uh, Republican political candidate. Every once in a while, uh, lawyer and all-around good guy. Uh, so we'll, have, we'll be diverse. We'll be representative. Uh, you can come. Just get on the Watkinson.org website and check it out. Um, there's a wonderful dinner that you can attend beforehand. Lovely dinner around five thirty, six o'clock. And then 7 o'clock, we walk across the way and sit down in their lovely amphitheater, and we talk. Uh, so do that with us. It's called Honey, I Broke the Democracy. Uh, all right. So um, also another quick sort of news bulletin unrelated to the campaign. I'm a little actually... Uh, I'm a little hurt by this, kind of. But um, so John G. Rowland, former governor of Connecticut, uh, won three elections uh, and uh, had to resign under pressure uh, the first time around, has decided against appealing his sentence for campaign finance fraud. And he has reported to the federal prison to which he has been assigned. I believe that's in Otisville, New York. Yeah, it's Otisville. Uh, And uh, he's 59 years old. He's going to be given his old identification number. Um, He had like kind of one. He, his appeals were not being successful, although he didn't really have to report today. At least that's my understanding of this. Um, he's uh, doing 30 months. It could be uh, with good time. Could get it down to 26.5 months. But the reason I'm a little hurt by this is like uh, over the weekend I published this column saying that kind of based on some of the – spiritual exploration that I've been doing, I, I've sort of really, you know, not really liked this man very much over the years and really felt that he was a, a bad steward of the public trust, to put it mildly. Uh, but i would sort of been thinking, you know, who uh, needs him to go to 30 more years, 30 more months of prison? I mean, he's already been through an awful lot. Uh, he's, he's already been subject to do a lot of shame. I don't need him to go to prison. I'd even offer to be part of his rehabilitation process. I'd meet him like once a month and, you know, in a diner and we talk about the Bible or something. Anyway, like I, I, <laughs> I published that article and his reaction is, you know what, I think I'll just go to prison right now. Like, screw it. I'm not even going to appeal to the thing anymore. I'm just going to go to prison right now. And I'm not saying one thing led to the other, but I can't help but think that it's kind of like, oh, really? He wants to have coffee with me. Look, just send me to prison. All right, so we're going to go to your phone calls now, 860-275-7266. The debate is tonight. Uh, it is estimated by some people, I don't really know how they think they know this, that hundred thousand, uh, hundred million, 100 million excuse me, people could watch this. Uh, that would make it kind of almost Super Bowl-sized in its audience. Um, it's also thought that there are people— uh, that, that, who are persuadable, that who are persuadable by their debate persuadable. Call up if you're debate persuadable. I mean, you can call up for other reasons, too. We'd love to hear from you. But I wanted to quickly mention, like, if you're the kind of person who you, like you really don't know who you're going to vote for, and it does seem to you uh, uh, that uh, that this is a debate worth watching and might tell you something. You are in the 11% of voters considered to be debate persuadables. That is, you think debates are important, uh, and right now you're maybe a third-party voter or only loosely committed to one of the two major party candidates. You really do feel as though a debate could swing you. Love to hear from you and then what you will be looking for. 860-275-7266, the number to call. Let's start with David in Chester. Hi, David. You're on the air. Yes, here I am.
3: Now, I two things. First, I'm very worried about what I call the fascist two-step. The first step is that a charismatic man fans the flames of discontent. Secondly, he then says, I'm the only one who can cure it. Now, what concerns me about this election is not the fireworks of it, but the complacency with which we seem to act. We feel that our Constitution is so ironclad and that our legislative process works so slowly that we are safe under our Constitution. I do not believe that. I believe that an erratic man could start a fray, a a war that could result in a Korean missile maybe, hitting us. And at that time, the uh, president becomes much more authoritative. And I believe in my heart that under Donald Trump, we would be in real trouble.
0: Yeah, but I don't really... Yeah, that's my thought. I have to say, first of all, one just thing to because I'll get an email about it otherwise. Uh, the, thing, the time that he said, I'm, I'm the only one who can do anything about it. He was talking specifically, I believe, about how the political process was rigged. And he said, hi, I'm the only one who can do anything about that uh, because he's an outsider or something. But I don't really feel as though I run into a lot of complacent people in this election. Not, I mean, maybe in Chester they're more relaxed. But mostly everybody I talk to is a stress ball one way or another about this. So I don't, I don't know that that particular scenario hasn't flitted through the minds of a lot of people. Uh, but maybe maybe I'm not talking to the complacent people. Anyway, 860-275-7266. Uh, that's the number we'd love to hear as we head into the debate tonight. Uh, you know, we I'd like to know even if you have an idea about what constitutes either a quote winning or quote losing the debate. Um I sometimes feel like those are bad terms anyway. Whatever it is, by the way, it always happens in the 30 minutes. Every debate that's ever had kind of a pivot point or a kind of a sense that something um, redounded uh, to the credit or discredit of one of the debaters, it always happens in the first 30 minutes, which is not to say you can stop watching for the final 60. Uh, Debate, by the way, begins at 9, ends at 1030. No commercial interruptions. Here is Scott. Scott, you're on the air. Hello.
4: Hi, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, My question is this. With all of the reporting, or lack thereof, in my view, on the email situation with uh, Clinton, is why no one has talked about the probability, not the possibility, but the probability that some of these mysteriously lost emails uh, were directly with the President of the United States. Comment?
0: Uh, well, I mean, we do know over the weekend that um, that President Obama is on some of the emails using a pseudonym. I think that's sort of established fact now. All right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, the, I don't think we've been told what his pseudonym is. I was advocating for Carlos Caution, you know. I mean, because he's not really Carlos Danger; he's more like Carlos Caution. But yeah, I think probably. Well, I mean, here's so here's the problem with that. I mean, it did seem in some of his earlier comments as though President Obama had said. That he was kind of unaware of this whole, you know, other email server. So if it's true that he used a pseudonym and participated in those emails, that's a little bit of a problem. I would agree. Uh, we've got a Trump supporter calling, in. that may have been a Trump supporter too that I just talked to. Here's Art in Burlington. Hi, Art.
4: Ah, uh, Colin. Hey, it's always great to hear your voice. You guys great show. I, I'm I'm only saying yes, I am a Trump supporter, but. I want the best person for president, and I've been waiting for the debates. I don't want to see uh, my candidate, Mr. Trump, come off as Nikita Khrushchev, just banging his shoe and hollering on the table. Uh, I want to. I want to see a presidential candidate and. Uh, I hope I see that from both candidates tonight, actually. That's what I'm hoping. And and then I really will make up my mind. I expect I'll vote for Trump only because I want change. I am not a supporter of the socialist program, although I'm not going to say that Mr. Obama has been uh, – he has done what he could for America <laughs> And the only thing is, I want to see America go forward for, from here. I think we can do it for, with Trump mm. and not with the past socialist policies.
0: You know, I mean, but you're not suggesting that President Obama has socialist policies, right? I mean, there was I, never I, a more dedicated capitalist in the White House that, I, I, that I've seen.
4: I, actually, I, one thing I have to say, if you want to say Obama's a socialist or communist, good. But I think Obama saved us from... The Depression that yeah. we had in 1929, he bailed out the damn banks. Well, I wish he bailed out me, but, you know, that, that didn't work out. But he did bail out Wall Street, and that's the only thing that kept the country together, in spite of all his socialism or whatever. But,
0: but, but let me just ask you, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that among among the many things that happened during the Obama presidency, including the— uh, creation of, I think, 10 million new jobs. Uh, corporate profits are up 153%. For the most part, socialists, real socialists, Art, they tend not to increase corporate uh, profits. They don't really think that way. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I just, I don't, like, what's Obama's socialist thing that he did? Like, when you call him a socialist, what are you talking about?
4: All I'm saying is he's trying to bring a a a rhythm to America that, uh, that seems to lean towards the European type of economy. But, listen, I, I can't compete with you. When, when you tell me that uh, he's not exactly a socialist, I think he is a socialist. I, all I'm saying is I don't think he was the terrible president that some people will say he was – but I think he leans more toward I'm I'm really upset with he hasn't been able to gather us together around we have terrible problems in cities mm-hmm. and he has an opportunity to gather the moment with the issues in Charlotte and uh
0: well Tulsa. Well, yeah, he's tried a few times with that. All right, Art, I'm gonna let you go. Uh thanks for all that. Um But believe me, if there's one thing that I can say with a certain amount of confidence, Barack Obama is not a socialist. (laughs) He just doesn't meet any of the qualifications for socialist. Uh, I mean, you might not like him. You might have some differences with you might not think, for example, that Obamacare is going to work. You might be right about that, but he's not a socialist. All right. uh, Here's uh, Alexis from Sherman. Hi, Alexis. Hi there, Colin. How are you? Just fine. I love your show. Oh, thank Um, you.
5: So my hope tonight, um, I'm not a persuadable um, Clinton supporter. I have no problem with her, um, you know, uh, being over-serious or over-prepared or any of those, or even um, sneaky and secretive. I don't think she's any of those things. But um, understanding that the persuadables need to see, you know, the opposite of all that. mm mm-hmm. Um, i'd like to see her be very uh witty, light, humorous um as as she approaches kind of the personal aspect of the debate um with Don Donald and um i'd love for her to like uh for example, you know, if he goes to, you know, do some kind of offensive attack on her Say something that just will just send him rocking back on his shoes and like you know oh Donald you've got to stop flirting with me you know just something that's unexpected and and light.
0: Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I'm I'm not wild about that, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I look, I think one of the things that she needs to do is be presidential and, and be obviously presidential. And, you know, I mean, if she wants to put him back on his heels from what we've seen so far, unless there are these untapped depths uh, of preparation, nuance and detail, all she really has to do is ask a few follow up questions. Uh, I mean, as we were saying, I was saying with Matt Fleckenheimer earlier during the Republican debates, he didn't do well when there were follow up questions. He often didn't seem to understand some really uh, basic uh, point about the thing that he was talking about. That's happened a few times in TV interviews as well when he's talking uh, to Stephanopoulos about the Crimean annexation. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I, there, the, I, I actually do think that without being – if I were her, I wouldn't get too far outside my normal zone of behavior because then you start getting that weird laugh that bothers people and stuff. Just, oh, to,
5: yeah. Just be, laugh. be yourself. But, you I you mean, know, I'm like sure everybody she, um, has a piece
0: of advice for her.
5: I, the reason I'm saying that is though that what I said, though, is – I was watching this morning um, one of the shows right there in Hofstra, and one of the undecideds was one of the cheerleaders there, a mm-hmm. young woman, you know, the millennial right. uh, voter, and you know, as a woman, I think that she's going to be looking for Hillary to to turn it around in a way that isn't wonky. It isn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for those voters, those unpersuaded and unpersuaded voters, it is a personality contest,
0: mm-hmm. and she's
5: got to do a little bit better on that level.
0: Right. Well, with cheerleaders, eh, yeah, you got to do something perky and peppy. Now I understand why you had that idea. You we're watching a cheerleader. All right. So uh, we're going to have to go in just a couple seconds here. I don't think I have time uh, to take another phone call. But thanks to everybody who did call in. And um, I also want to say that we have our producer, Jonathan McPants, is either in, at Hofstra in Long, on Long Island, the site of the debate, or on his way there. Uh, I will be with Lucy Nalpotential tomorrow on Where We Live. We're going to co host Where We Live to do some debate, quick turnaround uh, debate analysis for you. Uh, also on the wheelhouse, of course, on Wednesday. I'm basically going to spend my entire week on the radio. That's what I'm trying to tell you. But so join me and Lucy uh, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., and then join me and Mr. Dankowski. And our guest, Wednesday at 9 a.m. Thanks to Katie Talarski. Uh She had to jump in. She's the big kid, uh, the executive producer around here. She jumped in and produced this show. Thanks for, to Wolfie for being on the board. Uh, and we may have reports from Hofstra, from Jonathan McPants, maybe even on where we live tomorrow. Could get really exciting.